Welcome to Foibles, where my mom and I record conversations we have anyway. I'm Zoe. I'm Zoe's mom. Oh yeah, that's right. I have a name. It's Rita. (laughs) Welcome back to Foibles with Rita and Zoe. Last time in this epic series, we were talking about the dissolution of Marilyn Monroe's uh, marriage to Arthur Miller. We've hit that Gettysburg point. Unfortunately, there is no winner here. Marilyn doesn't win and Arthur Miller doesn't win. It's simply a situation where this marriage is done. Even though it goes on for three more years, there are, as I said, repeated attempts from Marilyn to bear a child. She can't do it. Marilyn meets Arthur's family. Again, like with Joe DiMaggio, she ingratiates herself. She is lovable. She is part of the family. People really, really appreciate and love her. The failure of this film, because it does fail, is devastating to her desire to grasp the bull by the horns and have her own production company and sort of be the master of her own fate in terms of film. The company ends up just going under. So it's a it's a bad movie. We've already yeah. established that, but it was also a flop at the time. Right, right, be- because it was, it, I mean, you can watch it if you want. It's interesting to see. You get to see more Marilyn. I right. Mean, but the reviewer says, like, she outshines Olivier in Well, she way. does. She absolutely yeah. does. He's totally stiff and terrible. And she at least, it's as if she kind of wandered in to this stiff environment. Now, it's interesting because the, um, the other actors, like Sybil Thorndike, who's a great, well-known actress of the theater, and she did latterly do films as well, she liked Marilyn. Marilyn was very nice to her, and uh, Thorndike appreciated that. And but there was just so much going on. In fact, there's a film that was made about this period, starring an actor I really like a lot named Eddie Redmayne, who won the Oscar. Yeah, he won the Oscar for playing um, playing young Stephen Hawking. Wait, this is a movie about the production of The Prince and the Showgirl. Exactly. And- Okay, so I, I hope you can I hope you can edit this so that it makes sense. Anyway, the, in the film, Marilyn is played by an actress that I like a lot, um, Michelle Williams. I think she's an excellent actress, and I think she does a very credible and respectful and insightful uh, portrayal of Marilyn and her weakness and her and her ability to manipulate other people. Of course, Michelle Williams, as good as she is, is not Marilyn. And that's one of the things that always kind of goes against things where it's like where somebody is better or more amazing or, or more intelligent than the person who is creating the work. They can't match up. Sure, yeah. But Nobody cr- is Marilyn, which is the thing that is the essential thing about Marilyn. <laughs> but, it's very, but it is very appreciated that yeah. she does a very intelligent and insightful appearance. And Eddie Redmayne plays this guy named Colin Clark, who was sort of a gopher on the film supposedly this is based on his memoir of, of the situation. How true it is, I don't know. But certain parts of it ring true. And he ended up sort of being someone that would cater to her or go there and listen to her or whatever. But she was having a very hard time lying in bed. It, it, the film is interesting and it shows her lying in bed and being prostrate and being kind of manic depressive and drugs and so forth. And then also on the other side showing her rehearsing and working out her Marilyn personality and how she would walk and behave, which I'm sure she did, very much so. And in the film, the Lord's Olivier role is played by, very interestingly, the actor Kenneth Branagh, who's also a sir. Of course, actually, Olivier became a lord. But uh, Branagh, who was sort of the great Shakespearean actor of his generation, the way Olivier least purportedly was and this movie has an amazing cast uh, dame judy dench is in it and she plays the sybil thorndike role again a really great parallel Parallel. yeah and uh, in a small part and i think a cool self-effacing way was emma watson of the harry potter movies so she's a big star from the harry potter movies and she plays a small part of a woman who's a dresser and kind of interested in eddie redmayne's character and it's really quite good what's the movie called the, oh thank you <laughs> i forgot to say my week with marilyn 
Ah, okay. And that movie is from uh, 2011, and it's I think it's worth watching. It's interesting. It's not great. I didn't come away with it as in my top 10 list, but I thought it was interesting. And, and if you're interested in Marilyn, it's great to see a take on her experience I think I've seen in her it, life. Actually, really, I think so. That's uh, that's a film about that period in time. Uh, so getting back to it, just to say it was it was a critical and financial failure, and really her. Um, Production company came tumbling down. Okay, fine. That's enough to say about that. But now we're getting to really important stuff here. She's still a big star. She still has a lot of money, right? Oh, uh, well, you know, her money situation was never was never really super great or super uh, solid. So we okay. won't talk about that. <laughs> okay. Um, but basically, we come to the important point. Because she comes back, she still has a contract with the studio. It's basically kind of like, you do some for us, you can do some on your own, we'll distribute them. I don't know. I, I'm, I'm bored by that whole thing. But, you know, if you read uh, the book by Barbara Lemus that I, we have in our show notes, you can get a, a lot of details about the ins and outs of her contracts and her business dealings. Next picture is a picture she did not want to do. It was a picture that she resisted. She's an actress. She's a, a serious actress. She just wants to be a great actress. And here she is being asked to do another Marilyn Monroe role. Her best film ever. <laughs> you say the title. You know what it is. Some Like It Hot. Directed again by Billy Wilder, who had had some trouble with her on, on The Seven Year Itch, but... He had experience with her, too. Yeah, he kind of felt like he could manage her. Horrible situation. This film was the just the beginning of the end, really the beginning of the end, of her capacity. She could not remember a line. There is a scene in the film where she comes into a room, and she has, I forget what line, but she has one sentence. She cannot, it's one sentence. I'm going to look it up. Sorry. You're gonna have to. You're gonna have to edit this, my darling. You're I'm such a good little editor. Gonna beaver it. away. It's probably going to be a long episode, but it's there's just so much to say because Marilyn's so interesting and she had such a full, rich life, even if it was also well, tragic. I love how the young women like you, yeah, embrace her and accept what challenges you face because of the patriarchy and. Uh, because of cultural norms, and, and yet go backwards and look at somebody, the quintessential blonde bimbo, male gazy icon, and see what's beyond that, and see the power within Marilyn's iconography and her wit, and, and, and as a person also, her wit Just and her, her roundedness. intelligence yeah. and her, you know, and, and her damage. Yeah. And I just, I, you know, I really think that that's so cool because in my day, in the, you know, my, my period of whatever would be like the early 80s, 80s or whatever, Marilyn was being rediscovered by people like uh, Madonna during the 80s. Madonna reinvigorated the image of Marilyn Monroe in herself by imitating her poses by taking the clothes she wore and then mutating them into a Madonna kind of thing. Yeah. And the blonde hair that Madonna... And the references. And the yeah. big red lipstick and all of that. Material and, girl. Right. Yeah. And the overt sexuality. But Madonna was doing it in a different way with a different political agenda than Marilyn did. But she was taking sort of the legacy and bringing it forward. And I think your generation of, of young women are taking it further in a, even a more positive, both sex positive, but also agency, female agency positive way. And that is not putting down men. And that is not denigrating men or making men less. That's how I see it, which I think is fantastic. You know, because it's positive. It's not like, oh, we hate you. And oh, we want to tear you down. It's like, hey, we just want to be with you. You know? And I like that. I think that I, I don't know why anybody would not be excited by that. So you can edit that. You know, I trust you implicitly. Yes. You edit however you want, you little 
vixen. <laughs> you little smarty pants. So Marilyn had a terrible time remembering just a simple sentence. It's heartbreaking. The line that she needed to remember is, it's me, Sugar. And Sugar was, you know, a name here. And so it took her 47 takes to deliver just, it's me, Sugar. And Billy Wilder was really going nuts with this because he would put, there's a point where she walks into the room and she's supposed to open the drawer and pull it. I think she pulled out a bottle of liquor. I want to make sure I'm clear. It wasn't that the film was being done during Prohibition, but the film was set in Prohibition. Set in Prohibition. And so she opens the drawer and he has got a piece of paper taped in there. It's me, sugar. And she would say things like, it's sugar, me. It is sugar, me. Me, it is, I mean, literal. Just word salad. Yeah, word salad, exactly. And it was horrible. And and she had this trouble throughout the film. And if you listen to Tony Curtis, uh, who was a co-star in this film, Tony Curtis and Jack Lemmon were the two male co-stars. And Tony Curtis was the, the person who played the character who was in love with Marilyn. He said that basically they just had to know that when Marilyn got it right and Marilyn looked good, that was going to be the, the take that was going to be printed in the film. So they had just better be perfect on every single take. There was one take in there where Jack Lemmon, and I don't know which one it was, I, I, I don't have the movie memorized, where he trips and stumbles, but Marilyn gets the take right, and that's the one they used. Because Jack Lemmon and Tony Curtis were on it, and they were consistent, and Marilyn was the star. She was the light at the, at the center of this movie. Okay, I, I just want to give due. Jack Lemmon and Tony Curtis are amazing in this movie. Oh, yeah. This is like, to me, pinnacle for both of them. Yeah. But she is the center of the movie, and she's also fragile, and also she's having trouble doing her performance. Everything revolves around her. All the parts, it it is a machine that works together. Like, all the parts are essential, and they're all amazing in this movie, which is what makes a great movie, Mm -hmm. right? But I think it's also props to, no matter how frustrated they got or how, you know, harsh they may have been with her off screen... It's props to all the actors and Billy Wilder, the director, that they recognized that and worked with it and were able to even make a product that is so good. And apparently, according to Tony Curtis, he also had an affair with Marilyn at this time. Uh Aha. And as you know, the standard feature of Marilyn's life is when she has a man and then when she sees another man that she's going to be moving to, there's always an overlap. And so she's with Arthur Miller. Things are not going well. And she begins having affairs with other men. It's her standard pattern. So anyway, um, that film was filmed. And again, she didn't want to do it. She wanted to do her own films, her own serious films. And what happened? You tell me. What happened with this film in the theaters? It was a resounding success. Hello, it was a hit. Because it was Marilyn. Doing what she does. Doing what she does. Best. Yes. She was an absolute star in this and plus she was in a, in a film with a great director with a great script with great co-stars mm-hmm. i mean everything came together but she couldn't see that because it's not what she wanted and it's not what she th- yeah what she thought she needed to do or needed to be now the other thing i want to point out and i hate to do this because it's kind of body shaming so slap me down if i um <laughs> if i am to retrograde. We're going to discuss Marilyn's weight, which I think is... It's pertinent. It's pertinent because she's an actress, first of all, and that's a huge deal in Hollywood. What's more important is that her weight reflects her mental state. Right. And what's going on with her in terms of, apparently she would binge eat. Yeah. And she would just get caviar. I mean, fancy foods, too, often. Fancy foods that belied her poverty-stricken antecedents yeah you know and she would do this and it shows her mental state and that's why i'm only reason i'm bringing it up and so you'll see in the film that she's a bit heavy and you'll see how they light it very interesting yeah she will be dark on the her body and her face and her chest will be in the light and so that's one of the ways she wasn't super heavy but she was certainly not at her those things are just very finely tuned with on screen yeah basically Okay, so that's how it was, but her doesn't matter. 
And that's the beauty of it. It doesn't matter. Her performance is... Uh, yeah. I love her performance. But Jack Lemmon and Tony Curtis... Well, Tony Curtis with her directly, and then Jack Lemmon on the side as a, a sort of a B-plot, are so perfect yeah. in every way. These guys deserve a lot of credit. The three of them have a lot of scenes together, too, which yeah. is kind of the beauty of it, is that it's almost a buddy movie. Right? Oh, absolutely. Or, I mean, it's definitely a buddy movie for the two of them, but it's a buddy movie for the three of them in a certain way, too. Kind of, yeah. There's, yeah, they, she's, yeah. She's both she's both an object of desire, but, she, but it's also a buddy movie because... Uh, part of the plot is that they dress as women in order to avoid. Thank you for bringing uh, that up. I, I didn't. Well, we we are going to do a review later. when We talk about this, but let's it's an do all it now. it's an all woman band and all woman orchestra who travels around the country. And Jack Lemmon and Tony Curtis have to disguise themselves and join the band in order to evade a, a mob boss. And because they witnessed the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. So it's a historical movie too. Oh yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> and so. They befriend Marilyn as part of this all-women's troupe. And, like, you know, he has feelings for her. She doesn't know he's a man. You know, there's a whole lot of things going on. But they befriend each other, which right. I actually really appreciate because that doesn't happen. That kind of setup couldn't even happen in movies of that time very often. But the other problem, okay, problematic, <laughs> yeah. is that Tony Curtis, yeah. he's got his eye on Marilyn. And, of course, yeah. both, you're he's very pretending right. to be a woman. You're very right. But then he pretends to be a rich man to inveigle her in to having sex with him. Yeah. But, I mean, of course, in these movies in these days, they soften it, and it's like, oh, he wants true love or whatever. But he's... Yeah. He's, I mean... He's lying. He's scamming her big time. But it's still funny, and it's great, and I don't care. I love this movie. <laughs> I love it. I had intended to save all this See, until this we is... do the reviews, but we can't. We've got to talk about it now because it's so amazing. So... <laughs> See, this is the movie where it's like, bus stop, unacceptable. Some like it hot, totally acceptable. Yeah, I know, I don't care. It's the a, weird machinations. Yeah, you know. it's totally terrible, but we love it. Um, do do we really want to, or shall we save it? Oh, we can move on. Yeah. Okay. All right. Sorry, guys. So, some like we it are, hot happened. We are going to get back to some like it hot and our rave reviews, and we'll tell you more about it. And hopefully, our discussion of this movie is going to just propel you into immediately going <laughs> online or immediately going to wherever it is you get your viewing and watch this film because yes. it's number one. Oh, we well, can talk about it now. Okay. We're if gonna, you're feeling the fire, no, you No, 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 no. We're going, shh, shh, quiet. <laughs> we are going yeah. to tell you later okay. about this film, but I'm going to tell you a hint. This is going to be our number one film for Marilyn Monroe. Clearly. <laughs> number one Marilyn Monroe film. Which is so ironic, because this is this, this is, is the point decline. where she's 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 close to death here. I mean, I hate to say this, but I do always kind of look and go, how how much longer does she have to live? And this movie is 1959, and so she is near the end. How old is she? In the film, she was born in 1926. 1959. That's only 33. She's right? 33 years old. This is three years before she dies. Anyway, it's amazing. It's an amazing film. And she, I mean, they're, okay, no, 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 stop me. I'm not going to go on and on. We've got to get to the end of Marilyn's life. So, Marilyn does not have much more time to go. She is still married to Arthur Miller. So, we got to get back to that because this is key. So, this is all going on. Then, her next film is a film called Let's Make Love. Which and, is one we've both seen twice. And I kind of like it. Me too. Even though it's bad. Yeah. <laughs> And it stars her opposite Eve Montand, who was a French actor. Has Eve spelled? Y V E S. Okay. He was a very successful, very, very, very famous actor who was on the stage, but in Europe, in France. Mm. Uh, song and Dance Man, believe it or not, and a great French film actor at the same time. And so he's very good at comedy. He he's good. And he's the good. thing the thing is is interesting is in this film he plays a super rich man, like he's a corporate mogul and super rich, and he doesn't know anything about the arts and he wants to get into this theater troupe because uh, they're making fun of him. Yeah, so this theater troupe is staging a sat a satirical play based on 
a lot of different famous people of the time in the movie, and he's one of them. Right. So he infiltrates the play, mostly because he has the hots for Marilyn. Exactly. But he doesn't know how to sing or dance, which is very interesting because Yves Montand was known as a song and dance man so in France. So he has to act he was also, that he doesn't know He how. was also married at the time to a very famous and wonderful actress named Simone Signoret. Now, Simone hmm. spoke English oh. fluently. Eve did not speak English. Eve is in a, an American movie where he has to speak English. So he and Simone move to Hollywood. And Simone, in the evenings, is coaching him on how to say his lines. Basically, he kind of picks them up mostly phonetically. But she's coaching him and helping him. If not for her, he couldn't have done this role. Amazing. And, okay, now here's the rub. He has an affair with Marilyn. <laughs> Even now, though he doesn't speak English. <laughs> well, apparently. Well, he, he was able to kind of, after a while, cobble together a few sentences. But apparently Marilyn, this is what they say, Marilyn seduced him. Marilyn pulled him in because her marriage to Arthur Miller was completely falling apart. And they would, they would divorce within a year. But she wanted to, and Arthur had gone away. He had, had went back to visit his family, his children, and so forth. And Yves Montand was there. And it was important for Marilyn to, to have that male recognition in order to feel okay. I mean, she just had to have it. That's how women were acculturated at the time. I mean, you know. So apparently this is a story. Is Yves Montand, she, was feeling, she said she was feeling ill. She inveigled him into her bedroom. She pulled him in. He didn't want to have the affair. He didn't want to uh, do it. Sure, he didn't want to. But he has an affair with Marilyn. And then, of course, Simone either finds out, or he may have written to her and told Simone that he this was happening. And it was a horrible blow to their marriage. But they managed to stay together huh. over time. But he really, I mean, I think it was pretty clear, and I do believe this. He wanted his marriage to Simone Signore to prosper and continue. And he did not want his peccadillo with Marilyn to in any way derail it. It was not it was not important to him in that way. Sure. He was just a weak guy. Or he was being like the typical woman figure in that he said, I need to sleep with her to get things to work because she otherwise she's gonna collapse and she won't show up on set. Mm. And I mean and poor this I do feel sorry for him in a certain way because he was struggling with the language and Marilyn got even worse. She was not showing up. She was not showing up. She was not showing up. It, I won't even go into how many times she did not show up. And there would be days and days and days. And so they would shoot around her, as they say. So they would keep shooting things with just him. Or it would be, if he was talking to her, it would be his side of the conversation. Right. They ran out of things to shoot. That's rough. So and this was his chance for success in the American market. So, I mean, it was probably fairly... Um, it was strategic at the at, very least. I think so, yeah. Of course, Arthur Miller did find out about this, and that didn't help their marriage any. Yeah. But I think Marilyn wanted things to start to fall apart. They didn't quite fall apart yet. Arthur Miller at this time was writing a script called, uh, well, I don't know if they called it this right away, but it was called The Misfits. Ultimately. Ultimately. And it was about cowboys who caught uh, these wild horses and then sold them. And the thing about this is this is very, very kind of ironic poetry in that this idea for this script came to him when he had been waiting for his divorce in Las Vegas, Nevada. He'd been there and at that time you couldn't get a divorce in a lot of courts or you could only get it if you had uh, mental cruelty and you had a reason mm. and it was a big litigation. But in Nevada, you could you would establish residence, and you were supposed to live there, I think, for six months. Couldn't leave the state. Establish residence, and then you could get a divorce in Nevada very quickly and easily. Just boom. Like, oh, like, so like, it, like today in most states. Yeah. In all states, I think. That's so interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I like it when you keep these things from me to a certain <laughs> degree. Like, I like to talk about it beforehand, but then I learn a lot of new things during filming or whatever we call this yeah recording recording thank you so you'll see this in a lot of movies a lot of movies where somebody goes and lives in nevada so they can have a divorce uh-huh he would sneak out because he was living in this little cabin down to this phone booth and he would call Marilyn, and they would have the, this is before they're married and they'd have these chats and they'd have these intimate chats hmm. so there was all this wonderful 
subterfuge and intrigue and, you know, sexual tension that was going on. And then he would sneak out of the state and he'd go and visit her and they'd have weekends together and then he'd go back. So, of course, there was this heightened sense of how wonderful this relationship was going to be in the future. But at the time he was there, he also became enamored and interested in the culture and the people. And there were these cowboys still at that time in Nevada who would go out on the range and they would catch these wild horse herds and they would sell them. And sometimes they would sell they'd be for dog food or maybe mm. maybe for riding and but a lot of them were just for dog food, which is kinda sad. It is sad. These are wild horses, but that's what they would do. That and that's what the play's about, yeah. Exactly. And so he was writing the script and he wrote it and it was very tortured. And he wanted to get the great director John Houston, the guy who directed the Maltese Falcon. He's a great director. A gr- he's a great director. He's very much a man's man. Yep. And this script is a man's script. Yep. And so Arthur Miller worked on it, worked on it, worked on it. And essentially, according to the sources I've read, one of the things that really broke apart their marriage was that Arthur Miller on his own could not get this through. He had never been able to get a Gripped. screenplay mm. through in Hollywood. He'd been trying back in the days of there's a, a film called On the Waterfront which somebody else ended up writing. But Arthur Miller had been writing a movie like that. It was very leftist, which is probably one of the reasons he didn't make it. And he couldn't get that through. So now this was his chance. And so Marilyn was just not okay with any kind of weakness or need or dependence on her. She was the star. People still wanted her despite her dysfunction. And here she was with this husband, who was supposedly the god of American theater, he cannot get this film through. And so what he does is in order to get it through, he links it to Marilyn. He wrote this for Marilyn. And, and he probably did very sincerely mean this as a vehicle for her, as a gift to her. But she didn't see it that way. She hated it because she felt that he was trying to get his agenda of his career furthered by linking her with his uh, screenplay. Because this screenplay was going nowhere if Marilyn was not attached, period. Mm. So, and she didn't want to play the role. Because again, the way he wrote her was the frothy angel. Well, we've seen the film. We'll talk more about the film because it's more complicated than that. but. But it does have her being the Marilyn role. And it doesn't give her the full range of what she wants to play. And it gives very much a male gaze of that Marilyn character. At the same time, it also has some really good nuggets that at least she inserts into her performance. But the problem is, is she did not like that. She did not like the way she was being portrayed. That's not the way she wanted to be seen by her husband or understood by her husband. And yet she was. And there was no way out of this. It just went forward. And she accepted it. She went into the production and John Houston accepted the play, but he ended up requiring a lot of rewrites. And I think rightfully so. John Houston, one of the top directors in my, my book, he knew film. He really knew how to craft a film and how to make the script cinematic. Arthur Miller did not. So they kind of had a little bit of friction there. And then Marilyn came in and she's got this character and she's taking the drugs and the alcohol. Her marriage is breaking up with Arthur Miller terrible situation and she ends up playing this role with clark gable now this if you have not been listening to this from the beginning this is weird you will not get this irony i hope you'll go back and listen to the beginning because when marilyn monroe was a little child as a foster care child whose mother was either given her to foster care or was in a mental hospital and she was being cared for marilyn never knew who her father was ever ever and she decided that her father must be i mean in her dreams right her fantasy was that clark gable was her father right she had a little picture of him maybe her mom encouraged it in some way and was and she just idolized him and so she ends up at the end of what she didn't know was the end of her life and her last picture to star with clark gable where and he's like got to be 30 years older than her yeah. it's kind of gross but it's he's gross. he's her love interest in this film isn't that fucking ironic she Ugh. chases her daddy her whole life and she ends up starring opposite him her. romantically Ugh. quote unquote it's so it's weird and it's kind of freudian and it's very much it's 100 percent of its time 
It's so of its time. It's so of Hollywood. Like it's, it's it's interesting too. It is. And so during the filming of this, Marilyn, same as ever, not on the set, not on the set, not showing up, not showing up. And they tried to shoot around her. It was, it was very, very stressful. And Clark Gable, he's not that old. He's in his late 50s. He is, he's okay, he's not 30 years older than her. Okay. But he's 25, 27 years older than her. More than old enough to be her father. Certainly. And he certainly looks old enough to be her grandfather, as far as I'm concerned. And I like Clark Gable a lot. Yeah. The stress on him was so intense that later, this was his last film and he died. And he's only in his late 50s. It was both of their last films. Yeah, but it, but he was in his late 50s. Yeah. And he was so stressed. Apparently, they said he was so stressed by the film, he it gave him a heart attack or whatever, and he died. And Marilyn felt guilty for that. She felt so guilty about that. Because huh. she hadn't intended to cause him stress or whatever. But apparently his last wife told her, no, we don't blame you for this. Yeah. So that that, that was seems not- a little silly. Like, I'm sure it was stressful. I'm sure it was intensely stressful. But it does seem a little silly to blame a heart attack on that. It was nice of the, the wife, even though the, of course, the writers and the newspapers all want to be all like in her face. So then following uh, this movie, this was 1961. Then in 1962, even though she was so erratic, they got her into a film called... Something's Gotta Give. That was um, filmed by George Cukor, who was a friend of hers and, and did love her. It was horrible. And basically she ended up getting fired off the film. You know that's bad. She ends up being fired off. And this is the... She's a huge star, yeah. Yeah, she's, she's still enormous. a huge star. And she gets fired off the film. Subsequent to that, she does not make another film. She does not start another film. What happens is she dies of a barbiturate overdose in 1962 at 36 years old. One of the interesting things that I've seen online is there is a photo shoot of her for this film where she's actually nude in a pool. Wow. Holding towels and stuff. So, I mean, you know, really, I mean, it's so tame by our standards. Sure. But it's pretty sexy. I'm sorry. She's 36 and she still looks. I mean, she doesn't look super young, but she looks vibrant. She looks beautiful. Her figure looks, I mean, she's still in her prime, totally in her prime. But at that time, the ageism and the sexism combined. come Just come in regardless. <laughs> right, they do. Yeah. And she might have had maybe four more years, let's say, if she were lucky. But she ended up dying of a barbiturate overdose. There's, a, You can just go online and read. There's a whole bunch of all kinds of conspiracy theories. For one thing, she had an affair with John F. Kennedy. And in 1962, and everybody's familiar with this, she sang Happy Birthday, Mr. President, on his birthday. And you you look at that, and that is the most... I mean, it's clear she was having sex with him. Yeah. When you, when you listen to that song, it's embarrassing. And Kennedy, after that song, he immediately cut off their relationship. Huh. That was the end. He didn't... He uh, could not afford. <laughs> well, yeah, and he had... Well, Kennedy... I'm sorry. Shall I digress? I'll digress and you can cut it out. <laughs> When I was a child, John F. Kennedy was the bomb. I remember when I was six is when he was, I think he was, so I was five when he was killed and he was the bomb. Of course, I was raised in a Catholic family and he was Catholic, first Catholic, Roman Catholic president. Huge. But still, for the country in general, his aura, even though it was the slimmest, by the slimmest majority, I think, in history, he won. Mm. He was just the public embraced him it totally and the the aura and the youth and And the charisma oh totally and okay i'm gonna digress here (laughs) again i'm sorry this is like a a third level digression but i have to say that that aura that idealization of his administration as camelot came from jackie kennedy huh okay let us not denigrate or forget the contribution of Jackie Kennedy to that legend. Because it was post his death. I mean, he was popular when I was, you know, I remember him being yeah. very popular and people loved the imagery, but it was only after his death that he became deified. She was the PR man of a she, century. She, she supported and grew his legend. Huh. Can I tell my story about John yeah, F. Kennedy? Yeah, go on. Okay, all right. I was five. And it so affected me. I remembered sitting in front of my little, in my little tiny rock baby, like child rocking chair, 
watching the Zapruder tapes where he is shot and watching the funeral where Jackie Kennedy with her two children, Caroline and John Jr., were watching the coffin go by in their uh, black, she was in her black widow's weeds with the veil and the two children and uh, little John F. Kennedy, oh, so sadly died, saluting, actually saluting, and Carolyn Kennedy. I was so moved by that. I would have dreams where I was a surgeon and in the corner of my living room in the house I lived in, yeah. John F. Kennedy would be there yeah. and I would operate on him and save him. And then I would go over to his wife, Jacqueline Kennedy. I would comfort her oh my and gosh. let her know that everything was going to be okay. That's so sweet. <laughs> oh. I had, the, that was a reoccurring dream. I had that dream for two or three years after the, after the, wow. the assassination. Dang. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, Marilyn had an affair with JFK. Right. And knowing what I know about JFK today, he was certainly not the wonderful. He was a horn dog. He was a horn dog. And so he broke it off with her. And she had a, a deep friendship with Robert Kennedy, his brother. And a lot of people say she had affairs with him. I don't think she did because she was also friends with Robert Kennedy's wife, Ethel Kennedy. And she would go over to their house and hang out and the whole family thing where she would ingratiate herself into the family. And she wasn't, she was on one level, she manipulated or she just like made things be a certain way. You know, she would make herself be a certain way. She wasn't a plotter. She didn't plot. This is my take. There are other, other opinions. There are a lot of other books. People have done probably more research than me. You can look at those. That's my opinion. From what I feel and see according to her personality, her makeup, and the makeup of the people around her. And that you've read a lot about it. Okay, I have. What I'm trying to get at here is there have been a lot, really a lot, of conspiracy theories around Marilyn's death saying that the Kennedy family had her killed with a barbiturate overdose that the FBI killed her because she could spill the beans and say, you know, of course, the FBI, J. Edgar Hoover, hated the Kennedys with a passion of a thousand sons. Yeah. So there's no way they were going to kill Marilyn for the Kennedys. Yeah. That the mafia killed her because they were linked with the Kennedys. Well, the mafia hated the Kennedys because the Kennedys were going after them when the mafia had actually manipulated some of the voting to make sure that JFK got elected. Huh. Okay completely other podcasts. There are other podcasts that deal with this. Okay, so I don't believe any of that. There is another theory that the nurse who was helping Marilyn and her doctor either medically negligently killed her and then tried to cover it up or maybe even intentionally killed her to cover and then covered it up. Much like the MJ. Yeah, I don't don't think any of that happened. This is my opinion. From what I've read and what I've seen of Marilyn and her downward trajectory, very steep, into being incapable of handling life and maneuvering and seeing her career begin to just decompose. And this is key. She's 36. Everything in her life revolves around her sexual potency. And she knows, even though it hasn't really diminished yet, it's happening. And within the next two to three years, even if she didn't think of it consciously, she knew that she would that the power that she had been welding from that source was going to dry up. And she had not established any other power base. She tried to when she created her production company, and that didn't work. Because she, that's just not what she was good at. And so her quest for respect. She didn't have a child either. Right. I don't think that would have helped her, yeah. frankly. I don't really don't. She had a quest for respect. And that quest for respect was a quest for power and recognition in the world at large. And she was never going to get that in the way she thought she should have it. Even though she really did receive it in terms of her other persona, Oh, absolutely. But she could not accept that. That was not what she was told by the Strasbergs, by the world that she should want. And so she never was going to get that. Honestly, I think that it was a conscious slash unconscious, because she constantly was over intaking 
the alcohol and pills. She was constantly doing it and always going unconscious and, you know, being incapacitated. And it was that dangerous perilous behavior that she engaged in that I don't think she said oh I'm going to kill myself necessarily but I think that impulse to get away was there other opinions are completely respected because who knows from everything I know about human behavior I think that she was just kind of ready in a certain sense and she she wasn't caretaking you know but it feels like because she was not able to grow and shift in a different direction where she was at and who she was had run its course well and so you can compare it so the way she lived and the way she died cemented her status as a truly icon truly and it were never degraded by and i'm not saying that like you know i don't know audrey hepburn or something now that we have images of her as an old person degrades her legacy as herself in all the films that she was in or anything like that but yeah there's an ephemeral bubble around Marilyn Monroe that would have not have existed in the same way it does if she hadn't had that life that was encapsulated in that way I love that point because you know what Audrey Hepburn is not the correct person to because Audrey Mm -hmm. Hepburn was a balanced person right where we're gonna go is no Abraham Lincoln Oh, okay. I was going to say Marlena Dietrich. Cause, no, no, because Marlena lived on. No, no, that's what I'm going to say is the contrast. That oh, Marlena yeah, Dietrich yeah, yeah, yeah. also, her self-image, not necessarily her career, but her image of herself and her self-importance hinged on her image, her well, literal totally. image. Her, her physical sexual image. Her and literal. physical image, yes. 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 And she lived on and she hid herself away. She became a complete agoraphobe and would not let herself be seen and hated to go outside and everything. She was miserable for 30 or 40 years of her life and she was bitter. No, 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 but, but let's let's go with an, an analog. I would like to. Let's go in an, yeah. a, the analog is Abraham Lincoln. Yeah. Because Abraham Lincoln, of course, no analog in terms of what they achieved and who they were in terms of their moral characters or anything like that, just their deaths. Yes. Abraham Lincoln was shot in the head and killed at the height of his achievement and glory, right. which was the end of slavery and the end of the Civil War. Of course, then that took a lot of turns later, but that didn't relate to him. Marilyn died at the height of her glory and her achievement. And her, her beauty. Her beauty. Well, that uh, that was her glory. And so that then allows a mythologization to occur of those persons that is not really related to who they were as human beings, but is related to their archetypal role. If she had lived on to be 70 years old and she'd been in films and she'd gotten old, I don't think there would have been the Marilyn Monroe icon there is today. And the ethos, yeah. Absolutely not. So as an adjunct or a postscript to this podcast, I just want to talk a little bit bit about Marilyn's psychology and what came up through her life. To note that she did work with these acting coaches. She worked a lot with uh, psychotherapy. She had psychotherapists. It was a very tangled web around her, but she did try to get some healing through psychotherapy, which generally tends to be of a Freudian bent. In New York, she was a student of Constance Collier, who was a great actress of her time. And she trained and mentored Marilyn in her acting talent. And this is what she said, and you'll see this in a story by Truman Capote, who was a good friend of Marilyn's. And Constance Collier said, she is a beautiful child. I don't mean in the obvious way, the perhaps too obvious way. I don't think she is an actress at all, not in a traditional sense. What she has, this presence, This luminosity, this flickering intelligence could never surface on the stage. It's so fragile and subtle. It can only be caught by the camera. It is like a hummingbird in flight. Only a camera can freeze the poetry of it. But anyone who thinks this girl is simply another Harlow is mad. This beautiful child is without any concept of discipline or sacrifice. Somehow I don't think she'll make old bones. Absurd of me to say, but somehow I feel she'll go young. I hope, I really pray, 
that she survives long enough to free the strange, lovely talent that's wandering through her like a jailed spirit. And here I want to link this to Elton John's song, Candle in the Wind. Latterly, it has been reframed to reflect uh, Princess Diana, but originally that song was written for Marilyn Monroe. And I think that this commentary by Constance Collier and Elton John's Candle in the Wind really dovetail Marilyn Monroe's essence. I think Constance Collier was brilliant. I think she caught mm -hmm. Marilyn Monroe as an artist. And the other thing I just wanted to touch on is, and I don't think this is any denigration of her ability as an artist, but it does, on the other side, talk about her limitations as a human being, is a psychiatric diagnosis. Now, she was diagnosed or considered to be a borderline personality. Now, the borderline personality disorder is a DSM diagnosis. So I pulled that, and I think it's very interesting if you look at the elements that comprise this particular diagnosis. And borderline personality is really one where a person does not really have a selfhood, where they don't know who they are. They don't have that touchstone in order to function in the world. And it says, in this case, the incidence of suicide attempts among patients with borderline personality disorder is among the highest uh, of those in their 20s, but mortality peaks in the 30s. And I think that is amazing because she tried several times or negligently tried, like unconsciously tried in her 20s many times and in her 30s, and she did achieve, if you will, mortality in her 30s at 36. They have a markedly disturbed sense of identity. So here is a woman who was born as Norma Jean Mortensen and transformed herself into a wholly different person, Marilyn Monroe. Frantic efforts to avoid real or imagined abandonment and extreme reactions. So here she is constantly glomming on to men and just for example extreme reactions to avoid abandonment there was this man don murray who didn't know her from adam who was supposed to be her love interest that she lashed out at because he was not willing to connect with her her husband arthur miller writes uh okay us maybe even denigrating I don't know if, if you could consider that. No. Comment about her, about his feeling about marrying her, instead of going to him and saying, oh, I'm so concerned, I want to work it out, what's going on, can we... She has an extreme reaction of, this is terrible, This it's the end. Uh, and there's also a thing called splitting, which is black and white thinking, which, I don't know, I don't know, I tend to feel that way. It's either I'm being respected or I'm not being respected. I'm, uh, people are listening to me or they are not listening to me. So that kind of, of um, all or nothing thinking. Impulsivity and impulsive or dangerous behaviors such as spending, substance abuse, reckless driving and binge eating. And sex. And sex, right. So the sex... The substance abuse and the binge eating are all part of Marilyn's behavior. As I'm sure we could go back and dig out on the things, sure. but we don't think we need to. Intense or uncontrollable emotional reactions that often seem disproportionate to the event or situation. Lawrence Olivier saying, just be sexy. Okay, maybe he was being an asshole. Maybe he was just being uh, uh, clueless. Sure. But going to the, he's my enemy. Yeah, or her co-star in um, a uh, bus, stop. bus stop, and he rips her dress, and she hits him with it. Maybe she didn't intend to actually hurt him with it, but it was kind of an extreme reaction. Right, and also being angry because he was in love with somebody else and not with right. her, and not interested in her. Um, unstable and chaotic personal interpersonal relationships. Okay, just listen to yeah. our podcast. Uh, Self-damaging behavior. Well, that's drinking, drugging. And having these sexual relationships, possibly with people who do not value 
or respect her. Uh, Elia Kazan, FYI. Um, a distorted self-image. Here's a woman who is the quintessence of desirability and doesn't understand that she's desirable. Dissociation, okay, I won't even speak to that. I'll just let you think about that because I don't feel... Um, That's a very subjective internal experience. It really yeah. is. It really is. Frequently accompanied by depression, check. Anxiety, check. Anger, check. Substance abuse, check. Or rage, check. Now, I'm just going to focus on the abandonment issue. Yeah. This poor child was abandoned oh, by her mother times. and by her foster mother. And her father. And by Grace and by her mother. And so she would see any relationship where she, where there was a breakup, regardless of her responsibility for creating it, as abandonment. Yeah. So she would totally freak out. And this is, I think this is really key here. I, I don't know, this is what I look at. Fear of abandonment may lead to overlapping dating relationships as a new relationship is developed to protect against abandonment of the existing relationships and that's what she did per our podcast which we discussed and you can read about these things i agree i mean i have experience with people who have borderline personality diagnoses a lot of experience at this point and it exists to such a different degree and such a different landscape and different people and yet at the same time everybody who's diagnosed with that ticks those boxes to a certain extent. And Marilyn Monroe really does. And, and she kept replaying that same thing throughout mm-hmm. her life to her responsibility. Mm-hmm. She kept recreating them after she became an adult. And so it became that recurring cycle. On top of that, that, that distinguishes her from all the rest of us is that she had an artistry and a brilliance and an artistic intelligence that created a archetypal character. That is what is going to carry her through. I don't know how long this will last. It would be amazing to see when people forget about Marilyn Monroe. People still remember Genghis Khan. How long has that been? That's true. And I mean, Marilyn, again, she is an archetype, but she's also an image. She's a literal image. You Mm -hmm. see her face emblazoned on all kinds of merchandise. Yeah, her physique, her... Her body, her dress, even the way she Mimicry, dressed. Yeah. Yeah. And that's huge. And I think that that image will last long beyond any like recollection of who she is or people watching her movies. R.I.P. Marilyn. If you want to get in touch with us, shoot us out an email to foiblespodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.